Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Hey there, everyone. From KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. And tonight on The Breakdown, we have a woman who is not intimidated by a challenge. She is not. Corinne Rankin is here. She's a former bail bonds woman and the founder and president of a group dedicated to electing black Republicans to office in California. That's right. She's also a board member of Black Voices for Trump. We're going to talk with Corinne in just a few minutes. But first, Marisa... A lot going on in national politics this week, would you say? Yes, indeed. I feel like Wednesday in particular. I think there was like 11 hours of impeachment hearings and then a, what, two to three-hour Democratic debate. My kids would like me back, I think. Yeah, a little bit of overload. But, uh, yeah, the hearings were uh, interesting. We broadcast them, of course, live, uh, gavel to gavel, as they say. And, you know, it it is interesting to see uh, the different Californians. I mean, Devin Nunes, Mm -hmm. the ranking member on the Intelligence Committee, obviously there to defend the president. And then you've got Swalwell and Adam Schiff, who I think is running a pretty tight ship, uh, you might say. I mean, you can really see the difference, I would say, just from a like, you know, logistical standpoint in these hearings versus some of the hearings that both Republicans and Democrats have called in in recent years that are strictly sort of political, whether you go back, you know, I mean, obviously these are political, too. But I think that some of the hearings where, you know, when even the Supreme Court Kavanaugh hearings where you have members who are just there to kind of make like beat their chest. There's been a lot of questions from lawyers, a lot of sort of long winded career diplomats who are very much trying to stay above that partisan fray. Yeah, I kind of think of this as if this were a movie, it would be called Revenge of the Diplomats in some ways. I mean, they're there, uh, you know, at some risk, I think, to their careers, mm-hmm. certainly in many cases. And it's kind of extraordinary when you see some of these folks, uh, the Lieutenant Colonel Vindeman, for example, who works in the White House. Right. You know, who still goes in the White House. Still there. Gordon Sondland. Yeah. Still, still the, the ambassador. ambassador. Yeah. And uh, so uh, it's, uh, it is interesting. And, uh, you know... I don't know that it so far has moved voters. Uh, You know, there's probably a narrow band of maybe, I don't know, 15, 20, percent of voters who haven't made up their minds one mm-hmm. way or the other. But it, you know, you have certainly seen the, uh, as this has unfolded, that the tone of Republicans in terms of what they're saying in defense of the president has changed. I think Sondland's testimony made it a little trickier for them to, uh, to uh, basically defend what happened, although they make a point that what he testified to was basically hearsay. You know, mm-hmm. what other people had told him, he did not hear some of those things directly in terms of what the president wanted him to do. Well, speaking of voters, we also had, as I said, a, a long, another long Democratic debate. Um, it seemed longer than usual. I think they went beyond the two hours they? they had planned. Um, you know, sort of broad takeaways 
and we can get into the individual candidates, but I did not realize ahead of time that it was going to be a panel of all female journalists. That was a that was really cool. neat thing to see. And I actually thought that like on balance, the way that the debate was sort of formatted and, and the questions went, um, I felt like was more substantive, quite frankly, than a lot of the other debates. It felt like there was a real effort to let people finish what they yeah. wanted to say. I think that's so annoying is when they say, oh, your time is up, your time is up. And they didn't do that in the same way. I mean, they, they, rail, they kind of reined them in. I was struck by the fact that, hey, there's two San Franciscans up there, Tom mm-hmm. Steyer uh, and Kamala Harris, who, of course, was uh, the, the DA here. Uh, and I think she had a really good night. I think yeah. this was, uh, you know, probably her strongest performance. She made a good case for herself in terms of being able to go toe to toe with President Trump and her, the electability question, the ability to put together, re- reassemble the Obama coalition. And I, I, I don't whether it will accrue to her you know, yeah. real advantage. I, I just don't have know. a hard time believing that this is going to move the needle for a lot of voters. Like, I think that there are, again, even though I think we heard more from people like Kamala Harris and Pete Buttigieg and Cory Booker, and I thought they all had strong nights, Amy Klobuchar, um, I think that, you know, at the end of the day, you have so many people on that stage. They too go, many. Too many. They go on for so long. And it's hard, I think, to keep track for, I mean, I think a lot of people, you know, to your point about about like the sort of Trump versus Democrats like are already have made up their mind also on a candidate or there's just sort of watching this or, or maybe they're not watching it because who has time? Yeah, for tw- ex- exactly. What, 14 uh, hours of political TV every day. It does make you wonder, is there really room for two more candidates? You know, Mike Bloomberg, considering <laughs> getting into Val Patrick, former governor of Massachusetts, has jumped in. Apparently nothing ha- about them. But no, there's not room for more. Candidates. There's not. You know, you got to take a few away. Um, you know, but it's, it is. I do feel like in some ways, Elizabeth Warren has peaked, uh, and we began to see some of the criticisms of her having an impact in the polls where she's kind of stalled, maybe fallen back a little bit. But Amy Klobuchar also had a, yeah. a really good night last night. All right, quickly, because we do want to get Corinne in here. Um, big win for Republicans in California today, President Trump as well. The California Supreme Court unanimously struck down this law Democrats had written to try to force presidential candidates to release their tax returns to get on the primary ballot. Scott, you have been following this. Uh, any I don't know. What's your takeaway here? Well, not a surprise. I mean, from oral arguments, we could tell that at least four, if not more, of the justices were very skeptical of this law. There was a lower court, a federal court judge in Sacramento who had already uh, blocked the implementation of this law. And, of course, Jerry Brown had vetoed it two years ago. It's a very similar version. And interestingly, the justices in their decision today quoted from Jerry Brown's veto message saying it was a slippery slope. Uh, So not a big surprise. Clearly, this was a political point that the Democrats in Sacramento were trying to make. And despite knowing that it probably wouldn't be held up in court. So glad we glad we did that. All right. We're going to take a short break. And when we return, we'll be talking with Republican activist Corinne Rankin. You are listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hi there, I'm Randa Abdel-Fattah from Throughline. 
If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. And welcome back to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer. And today we are excited to welcome Corinne Rankin. She is uh, a Republican activist who just recently started a group dedicated to helping sort of bring black Republicans into the process, get them elected. Um, Big Trump supporter, Corinne, thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. So we want to talk about your life story and kind of how you ended up in this um, really political role. But uh, quickly, what what are your thoughts on this uh, Supreme Court decision? Were you surprised at all? And are you happy to see that, you know, the president um, will be on the ballot, won't have to put his tax returns out? Uh, Yes. Well, it was unconstitutional to begin with. So, no, I'm not surprised uh, for just for all the reasons that you stated uh, earlier. But I I am glad to see that it's over with and that our president will be on the ballot in California for those of us who choose to vote for him. Yeah, we should. uh, I feel like every time we bring up the primary, we should remind people since there's no so many party, no party preference voters in California. They're going to need to register as a Republican if they want to weigh in in that election and request a Democratic ballot if they want to weigh in on the Democratic primary. Yeah, and it was the Republican Party in California that was that sued to block this law. Jessica Milan Patterson, the new chair of the party. Uh, So clearly uh, they they felt it was sort of a slapdown of Democrats for overreaching in Sacramento. Did you did you see it that way? Uh, yes, it was. And, you know, it's really, I mean, Harmeet Dillon, just, you know, a remarkable attorney. And, you know, we had just full confidence in her ability to be able to represent our party uh, so well. She's a friend of our pod, for yeah. sure. We've had <laughs> her on. All right. Well, Corinne, let's talk about your life story, because it's really interesting. Um, I know you grew up um, as a young child in Redwood City. Um, and you had uh, your dad ended up working for a bail bonds company. Talk about what was your childhood like? Um, um, on the peninsula, were you was was your family political at all? Um, in some ways, yes. So we I, we started out. I grew up in Redwood City, and then after a while, we kind of moved to, to Menlo Park. Um, my father had his business in Redwood City. I had family members in Redwood City, so Redwood City and Menlo Park are our neighbors. I was very much in both cities, kind mm-hmm. of growing up. Um, Yes. So my father started out in San Francisco here. He worked for a company named Puccinelli Bell Bonds. Um, uh, And then he moved to Redwood City and started his own business. Uh, He, uh, to this day, will deem himself the first black businessman in San Mateo (laughs) County. So I will just go with his word on that. (laughs) What kind of politics? You said he was somewhat political. Well, he was somewhat political in the fact that, you know, being in the bail bond business, you do um, have a lot of interactions with criminal defense attorneys, with prosecutors, with judges, law enforcement. You know, there's you know certain things with your board of supervisors, your city council that you may need to get involved with and, and, and get them their ear on certain things. But he wasn't so, like a hardcore Democrat no, or Republican. He, was he a Democrat? He, yes. Okay. He and my mother both were, were both Democrats. I was raised to be a Democrat. A Democrat. Yeah. Well, I read that you, when you guys moved to Menlo, Park that you know the, the peninsula is still very segregated the world was still very segregated yes. and you and and you've talked about that your dad was able to overcome the redlining there mm-hmm. uh, you guys ended up in an all-white neighborhood yes. what was that like as a young child was it hard uh somewhat yeah it was it was you know um 
to some degree, I didn't notice mm-hmm. at all that we were pretty much the only the black family in the neighborhood. Um, but then some days, yeah, it was, it was very much noticeable. I mean, I went to you know a, a Catholic school in Menlo Park, and we grew up in white neighborhood. So it 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 depends. You know, like I said, it was a day to day. Some days I didn't notice. Some days I very much noticed. And I think you worked in your dad's business, maybe as a teenager or something like I that. I did. What, what yeah, do you remember about that? Some summer jobs. Yeah, <laughs> quite the office to be working in, I'm sure. What did you do? Like, what was that like? Oh, well, I just I had to do a lot of filing. Okay. Um, I answered phone. Phones. I uh, would, you know, keep, you know, the data and, and, and documents together. What kind of people were coming in? I mean, it was, you said defense attorneys. For of sure, course, but. right, right. We, well, we were in a building with nothing but defense attorneys. We're in the criminal defense uh, attorney building. Um, everybody would come in. You, you'd get, you know, some of everybody. You'd get, you know, moms, dad, you'd get, you know, defendants, you know. Did you have an impression of the criminal justice system that you took away from that experience? Uh, yes. So I ended up doing uh, being in the bell bond business for uh, a little over 15 years. And yeah, I do have some incredible takeaways uh, just as in the system as a whole. Like what? I, I, well, I'm, I very much respect our, our criminal justice system that we have here in the United States. I think that it's designed to be fair. Um, there are some injustices that that happen. There are things that I do see that can be improved in 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 certain regards. Uh, a couple of things that I'd like to see be you know brought back, like Prop Thirty Six, you know, drug court where people who are um, addicted to drugs can be sentenced to rehab instead of hard time in jail. You know, things like that that you know I I think were very beneficial to uh, our society. Were just kind of defunded, and you know they kind of fell by the wayside. That's so interesting because I think that the 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 perception of bail bondsmen and you, you had like Dog the Bounty Hunter have his TV show, and a lot of the folks, quite frankly, who are lobbying in Sacramento, and we'll get to this, and, and, and you know, have a very different sort of law and order viewpoint. I mean, it seems like, and I know in your group, you guys talk a lot about rehabilitation. Is that was that something that you felt like you really learned interacting directly with offenders and their families? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I would see the benefits just. It would happen right before my eyes where you see from the day you, you know, bail someone out of jail, you could see sort of their the state of mind they were in. You can tell that they were struggling with their addictions. And then once they'd get sentenced to, you know, rehab and then they'd kind of have to come in and follow up and check up, you know, check in with us. And you, you could really see in their face and in their demeanor that these rehab facilities were, were, were benefiting them. At what point you said you you grew up in a Democratic family and sort of, I don't know if you considered yourself a Democrat or maybe didn't did. think about it. You did. Yeah. yeah. So did. like, at what, at what point was it? I assume it was some point when you were running that business where you thought, you know what, maybe I'm a Republican. <laughs> How did that go? <laughs> well, I grew up as a Democrat. And, um, you know, I always thought Republicans were racist because that's what I heard. You know, I thought George Bush was a racist. And uh, I voted for Obama and Biden the, the, the first time around 2008. Um, and at that point, I, I was kind of disheartened with the Democrat Party just in and of itself, just because of the politicians that I knew, 
that would, you know, say they want to raise my taxes so that they can pay for this for school. You know, I had children in school at the time. And I just didn't see those changes come. I saw the taxes being raised, but I didn't see any, you know, improvements in the school per se. And matter of fact, I saw the schools, you know, progressively get worse. And, you know, I'd, I'd hear politicians say one thing and then I started going to the meetings and they'd actually do the exact opposite of what they would say they were wanted to do. So I became really just disheartened with the Democrat Party overall. And when Obama came around and he was talking about hope and change and he said all these wonderful things. And I thought that he was in the same place I was where he was kind of disheartened with the party and was going to change things. And, you know, it gave me hope. And so I voted for him. And then when I saw him get into office, I saw that he just went right down the path of doing the exact same things that had sort of disheartened me um, before. Did you, did you feel pride as an African-American woman in having a black president? I absolutely, I, I absolutely was it, was it a, did. Was there like a debate in your head of, because you're at the same time saying, I don't agree with him? Well, it was, you mean after I became a Republican? Well, in that transition period. Or just watching period, him, yeah, yeah. That you were like, I was so excited about this, but now I'm not feeling like the gains, like I'm getting the gains. Well, it was, well, it was twofold for me because one, it was the fact that he was black and he had this, you know, great black family with these two beautiful um, daughters. It was that plus his message of hope and change. And so those two things combined uh, is what really made me want to vote for him because I don't see myself as... Maybe I would not have voted for him if I didn't agree with his message from day one. Did you have to sort of come out to your family as a Republican? Well, I had to come out to myself. At first, <laughs> I was in denial. You know, I, I went and read the platforms and I thought to myself, oh, my gosh. This is the national parties? or the Yeah, state the party? national no. party. So this is back in 2009, mind you. So I'm sure that the websites look different today. But <laughs> I thought to myself, oh, my gosh, I, I I, this can't be. I think I might be a Republican. And I just like hurried and clicked off my computer. And I was like, I'm just not going to think about this. <laughs> was it like the stuff around taxes and regulation or what? Yeah, it was about these around the stuff about taxes, regulation, just, you know, small government, you know, things like that. What, you know, I agreed with they 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 um, resonated with me. It was the way I grew up. You know, are your parents still alive? Uh huh. Yes, they so are. So, when did you uh, come out to them as <laughs> a member? They survived. You're the telling GOP. them you were a Republican. <laughs> I think they were in denial at first too. So they were like, "Okay, whatever. Let's change the subject." Okay. Um, but now, um, you know, I think just during this progression of me becoming a Republican and me being outspoken and involved in the party, and you know, my parents they see how well I've been received and and how, you know. It's been some years, but, you know, recently my father was like, you know, I'm going to register and become a Republican. Oh, he is. So did he vote for Trump? <laughs> did he vote for Trump last time? No, or? he didn't. Okay. No, he's just said this last year that he was going to register. And so I can see my mother slowly coming around, too. She's like, you know, I'm I'm proud of you. This is good. I can see this. We, I can see uh, what you're talking about. We were, of course, <laughs> we, we, we met, we, we saw you at the Republican <laughs> convention in Cleveland in 2016. Yes. and. You know, if you look at the California delegation or the more delegation more broadly nationwide, it's pretty white, <laughs> right? Yes, it, right, absolutely. <laughs> and I, okay. No so, mistake there. And, uh, you know, I just wonder, like, did you feel, hey, the party has to do a better job? There need to be more people like me here, and why aren't there? And, like, what conclusions have you come to about why that's the case? Well, I, I, 
I noticed it in 2016. I uh, I notice it when I uh, at conventions with our in our California party. It, it's it's very obvious to me now. Um, and so I, I was kind of easy because I didn't really have to draw any conclusions because at, at our previous convention in February, uh, you know, I heard there um, sort of was this narrative based on the data that the party received that said that, you know, they weren't going to put any of their time and effort into doing any black outreach because the population of black in California is so small. And I can see that from a business standpoint. I can, I can understand that. But from a moral standpoint, ethical standpoint, and just you know, from a community type of standpoint, I, I didn't think that was a very good decision for them to make. And so we kind of all came together, all of us you know, black Republicans. We kind of met amongst ourselves after and said, you know, we're going to do something about this and we're, we're going we're, we're gonna to work to make some real changes here. And then that's what uh, inspired us and I guess led us to create this organization. If you're just joining us, I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer, and we are talking to Corinne Rankin. She is a Democrat or a Republican Party <laughs> activist. She's um, former bail bonds woman, and um, you were just talking. It's the Republican Legacy Alliance. Is that is that? It's the Legacy Republican oh, Alliance. Sorry, yes. flipping those around. Um, so this, like, I have this right in front of me. Um, how? So the idea came about after you sort of heard that the GOP in California wasn't going to put this effort in. Talk about what your plans are. What are your goals? What's success look like? for you success to us looks it's kind of twofold so it's 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 sort of um we've got our work cut out for us one is just to outreach into the communities um to sort of reintroduce the republican party to the black community Uh, and i think that'll be very important because i i kind of understand where people are and understand their their state of mind because I was there myself at one point, so I think a reintroduction is is very important. Uh, first, um, second, we would like to uh, recruit more Black people to the Republican Party and to actually be involved in our party politics, uh, be involved with our organization, and really work to get a seat at the table on on a statewide level because we we don't have one, we haven't had one. And we need one. Do you think that, um, well, I'll put it a different way. How has President Trump uh, changed, for better or worse, your effort to recruit African-Americans into the party? Has it made it harder? Not changed it at all? I mean, what impact has he had? Uh, Well, like I said earlier, when I was a Democrat, I thought George Bush was a racist. So it took me a while to have to really go through my memory bank and and think, why exactly did I think that again? What exactly did he do and say? And, And, you know, I couldn't come up with anything. So I have come to the conclusion that no matter who's the Republican president, you're, you're going to hear this narrative that Republicans are racist. And I think that um, uh, President Trump has actually made things better, um, especially with most recently with his launch of the Black Voices uh, Coalition for his campaign. Which you're on the board which for. Which I, adv- I am an advisory board member for that. Um, it's historic. And it's historic because... Um, one, it's a black coalition for a Republican, you know, sitting Republican uh, president, which is something that has never happened before. So the fact that this president is doing that, the fact that, you know, he at the launch, he said that he's making, you know, black voters um, in, in America a priority for his campaign. That in itself is historic. And it helps us a lot, you know, and I'd have to say that, you know, 
the efforts of Katrina Pearson in this, you know, putting this together is just it's it's commendable. It's absolutely commendable. I mean, she really put her hard work into it and, and made these, you know, historic things happen. Can I ask you one thing? I mean, I know that um, you were talking about this idea that, like, racism is just being sort of thrown at Republicans. There's been some pretty documented things around Trump's business practices um, and especially real estate development around black communities and redlining and things that your family actually lived through. But I know that also the thing that attracted to you was his business. I mean, does that bother you at all? Have you gone back and really looked closely at that stuff or do you feel like that's just in the past? Um, well, redlining obviously bothers me. Um, so, I, you know, I don't like it. I don't I don't believe that, you know, businessman Donald Trump was the problem. I don't think that he implemented, you know, redlining across our country. I think it was a practice that more people than would like to um, admit to are guilty of that. Mm-hmm. I mean, that still happens today. I Absolutely. Mean, there's still in CC&Rs and, you know, s- you know, certain cities and certain neighborhoods where things like that, it still uses that language. How hard is it to, to, to like, what's the pitch to African-Americans? I mean, and how much resistance do you feel when you go talk to them? Well, I used to feel a lot of resistance, but lately uh, it's not so much. I think that, you know, with President Trump and the First Step Act mm-hmm. uh, and the criminal justice reform is really resonating with the black community in just a huge way. It's something that Barack Obama, President Obama worked on for eight years and couldn't get done. And then our President yeah. Trump comes in and he, he's able to pass it right away. And that's the First Step Act. It must be frustrating that he doesn't Talk about that more. I mean, you well, know, that, he that... does. I just don't. It doesn't get media coverage because for some reason I hear it a lot. Mm. It's just yeah. over and over. And, and, and I just don't think it gets enough national coverage. On that, I feel like some of what you do is like act like almost a therapist for people who want to come out. I know there's a story about you at counseling. I think it's Isaiah Washington, the the actor from Grey's Anatomy, um, who's also black. Talk, can you just talk about that? Like, like what are these conversations like with other people of color um, when you're, you know, sort of saying, "Hey, it's fine. Like, I'm here, and and I'm uh, things are good." <laughs> well, you so. Um, I, I usually like, you know, I, I like Isaiah to speak, you know, on his experience. It's not really fair for me to say, but it it is, um, you know, I actually take a lot of pleasure in it. It, it. it 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 feels really good to me because I didn't have anyone to sort of look to. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of coming out of the pl- closet of being a Republican. Uh, I didn't have anyone to sort of, you know, bounce these ideas off of or, you know, say, well, you know, why don't Republicans do this? Or why why do we do this? And why do they do that? And have someone to, you know, come and answer, this is why. This is this is the yeah. meaning. This is this is what it means. So I know that um, you guys, you said earlier that initially the GOP in California didn't plan on spending a lot of time um, doing outreach to the black community. But we've also seen, um, you know, Jessica Milan Patterson get elected, the first Latina to lead. It's a very young woman. Um, I think that there's a real sense among her and other leaders that they do need to outreach to a more diverse coalition. Do you feel like the party is sort of hearing the work you guys are doing and is and is going to get behind it? I hope so. Yeah. Are you? Do you have you talked to Jessica at all, or have you? Our, our party leadership, like, 
I don't know. It sounds it sounds like like they, like I feel like we hear a lot about Latinos and and the need to bring them into the fold, but it, but it doesn't sound like that is necessarily being carried on to other uh, people of color. Is that fair? That's fair. All right. <laughs> um, well, we just have a few minutes left. I know that you um, did close down your bail bonds business a yes, couple of years ago. You're doing consulting work now. Um, we always love to, to end on a high note. I wonder, um, I mean, what are you doing for fun? Is this uh, is this your idea of a party? Is uh, going out and <laughs> recruiting people Watching for the office? Debate. <laughs> <laughs> for fun? I, we, I'm actually, we're actually avid Boaters, so we do a lot of boating, especially in the summertime. Like sailboat or motorboat. Um, or? Motorboats, yeah. So we uh, boat a lot in the Sacramento Delta, oh, which beautiful. is just amazingly beautiful um, in the summertime. Um, we go to Canada and boat there around the island. So uh, we, you know, I, I get my fair share of uh, fun and relaxation. But you know, then it, I come back home, and you know. Monday through Friday, it's nine to five. We gotta, you know, we have to reach out to to our communities and you know do whatever we can to 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 make uh, people's lives better. Do you feel like that is better. fun for you? It is fun. You know, it's rewarding. It's fun. It's not always fun. It's sometimes fun, but it's always re- rewarding. And are you in twenty twenty? I mean, is this something that you think um, you guys could model for other states that you could export sort of beyond California? Absolutely. So we only we launched this in uh, September. And the response I've been getting is so overwhelming. I've had people from Chicago say, can we implement a chapter here? People in, in Minnesota, in Baltimore, everywhere. Well, but and, okay, I was going to say, in Alabama, there was a really up-and-coming 32-year-old, I think, African-American Republican elected attorney general. I mean, Cameron I think, Daniels. Yeah. Yes, I met him. I think, He's a very smart. So the, the, the funnest story is I met him at the launch for Black Voices, Camp, for, Black Voices for Trump. So I, I walk up to him and I, I tell him, you know, congratulations. My name is Quinn Rankin. I'm president of Legacy Alliance. And he says, I know who you are. <laughs> hey, that's good. So you're, you guys we're, feel like you're getting that So I feel out. like I'm getting, yeah, we're, we're getting some, some notoriety and some, some recognition. All right. People we're going to have to leave it there. But Corinne Rankin, thank you for coming in. Well, thank you for having me. It was fun. That is it for this edition of Political Breakdown, a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producer is Guy Marzarati. Our engineers are Katie McMurrin and Seal Muller. KQED's team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Lindsay, and Vinnie Tong. I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. I'm Marisa Lagos. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at M Lagos. If you're listening on the radio, please go subscribe to this podcast. It posts every Thursday night, and you can rate and review us there as well. Five stars recommended. We hope so. (laughs) Uh, For now, that is it. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just 
what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.